Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, besties. This is the Ethics Experts, and today we have Mary Shirley, who is joining us from Fresenius. You may have seen her on the wonderful, lauded, very expert, um, great women in compliance podcast. And we're pleased and excited to have Mary here um, to talk to us a little bit about her personal experience and journey in compliance. Mary, I'm so glad you're with us today. Thanks for being here. I'm so glad to be here, Gio. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really cool to be on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) It's awesome. Um, Well, obviously you uh, run an excellent podcast. uh, Everyone in the industry loves it. I know that I've learned a ton about it. Um, So I'm just uh, excited to have you on here and hopefully I can um, you know, kind of li- li- live up to your glory and, uh, and we'll do it. We'll have a nice time today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, today at Compliance Line, coincidence uh, or not, is uh, we're having our spirit week and uh, people are dressed up as what they wanted to be when they grew up when they were kids. And we got someone who is a, uh, um, an exercise instructor and someone wanted to be a paleontologist. Uh, and I got I got my baseball cap on because when I, when I was a kid, I uh, wanted to be a baseball player. So uh, what, I, what I find really interesting in compliance is that people probably didn't know about it when they were in the second grade, um, but people make their way to compliance from uh, a bunch of uh, different paths. So um, I'd love if you shared with us, Mary, a little bit about what first set you on a path toward a career in compliance. Awesome. Well, to, I guess, go along with the theme of your workday, I would share that when I was really young, I wanted to be a doctor and I would read a lot of first aid books, you know, getting prepared. And then it transpired um, throughout school that I was terrible um, at science and particularly math, um, which as many people who eventually became lawyers know is a very highly correlated lack of a skill set um, for, for people who become lawyers. We tend to be pretty poor at um, basic arithmetic and and the like. So okay. that was a sign early on that I was probably going in the wrong direction uh, for the doctor front, but didn't realize it. So uh, <laughs> I went to law school and we had a really similar situation in New Zealand that the United States has found itself in um, for a number of decades, which is that law schools tend to pump out more law graduates than there are legal jobs available. Yep. So um, I was looking a little more broadly than working in a firm and um, ended up in government working for regulators in the areas of data privacy and antitrust. And I, um, I joke a lot about compliance destiny, um, compliance, you know, you don't choose compliance, it chooses you kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, on a, a serious level, um, I very much feel that my, my background in New Zealand really set me up. Um, in terms of it being the perfect storm for for joining a compliance function. And the reason for that is that the earlier tenets of compliance programs often, but not always, um, consisted of uh, the competition law sites, that's the antitrust and the data privacy, and then, of course, that beautiful um, anti-corruption rounding off the the trifecta there. And then, of course, we saw a little some other um, areas like sanctions um, as well. So... Uh, at the time that I joined a compliance program, I would say like 98% of compliance people my age or older, I did in fact fall into compliance. And it has been one of the 
uh, most happy, um, uh, serendipitous uh, events to, to happen to me. That's great. Yeah, I love hearing that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there, that's a great comment about how compliance kind of chooses you. And it's great mm -hmm. to see people who, you know, um, they were a nurse or they were an accountant or they were on mm -hmm. uh, any various career path. It's this great balance of you have a real positive impact on people's lives. You have mm -hmm. this, you have to be able to manage programs and technology. And then it's ultimately this bridge of ultimately getting to behavior um, and mm -hmm. helping to impact people's behavior to, to make their lives better. Um, and clearly, clearly you found a great home because uh, you're, you're in the middle of a, of a great career. Thank you. And you're exactly right. In my opinion, compliance and ethics is really about shaping behavior. That's awesome. So um, uh, a big part of what we like to talk about here is about how the leaders in compliance are really elevating compliance as an industry, as a practice. Um, and that really kind of starts with the impact that you have on the team right around you. I, I like to think of these concentric circles of influence where mm -hmm. you have the people you see every day and you have the broader people on your team and ultimately you're impacting the people in the whole organization and then your impact on your community. So let's talk about uh, kind of you as a leader, um, as a manager, a developer of people and ultimately a culture carrier. Um, how, what do you do, what do you focus on within your compliance organization to lead those people well? Awesome, well, I have an overarching goal of helping my staff to be more valuable to the company than I am by the time one of us leaves the organization. And my philosophy very much in, in terms of, of leadership and also being a good colleague is simply that one candle is not dimmed by lighting another candle. Beautiful. So to those ends, thank you. <laughs> it's not, I didn't make that up, but it's, uh, it's the philosophy that I work with. Sure. <laughs> to those ends, I consider it important to give my team opportunities to shine and learn. And I think traditionally there's been a very strong focus on hierarchy and a view that junior staff should be given all the crappy and mundane work while senior staff get all the juicy high profile stuff because they've put in their time. Um, and have the experience to do it. Uh, I think that's flawed though. Um, the reality is that even new grads are super capable of doing a lot of the work that I do, and they should be given the chance to chew over all the challenging or real work, if you will. And so I see my role as being more one of quality control and also being the person to take responsibility when something goes south. So mm. there's a safety net there for the team in terms of the fact that they have a an environment of psychological safety where if something doesn't go to plan it's okay um there's going to be someone there to support them and help get back on the right track but otherwise that they retain um control and the ability to influence um the outcomes of their work because they've had a say in how to go about doing it and then executing on it um so i find this also to be a super efficient way to work you're not creating everything from scratch because hey you actually hired very competent and capable people who've done a lot of the heavy lifting um and your team feels valued and fulfilled so i i see that approach as being um really only win-win um and so in summary it's that trusting that someone you've hired is capable and that if there are rough edges that need to be smoothed out that you know that you've got a responsibility as a manager for coaching out those issues and knowing that even when your staff are working on complex matters, you still retain value um, as, as the manager of that team. You're not going to be shown up by your colleagues and trusting in your own self and abilities. 
Yeah. Um, I saw, saw an inspirational quote recently and obviously a scientifically backed source along with memes. And it said, <laughs> be who you needed when you were younger, which I think huh. gets the lessons learned for me in a very diplomatic way, which is that I had a couple of atrocious bosses um, in my past. But if I think on it, they probably taught me more than the strong leaders, uh, the really good role models, because I was very clear on what made someone a deficient leader that lets down the team instead of supporting it. So even though it sucked at the time not to have capable leadership in those rare instances, they defined for me who I didn't want to be when I advanced. Be who you needed when you were younger. That's awesome, Mary. I love that. Be who you needed to be when you were younger. Um, yeah, and it's so true um, you know, in these people interactions and with leaders that when you see something go wrong, it can have this very kind of visceral memory to you of like, okay, I do not want to be that person. Or mm -hmm. I never want to make someone feel the way that I just felt mm -hmm. after that meeting or something like that. Um, exactly I just think right. it's wonderful that instead of taking what can be a very hierarchical approach of, you know, I took my licks and then I'm going to give them out to some other people. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you took that and you said, okay, I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to make people's lives better for the, you know, the storm that I went through or whatever it was. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, I just love the way that um, a lot of kind of essences of good compliance practices uh, were just showing up in a bunch of the things that you were just talking about. Like you were talking about being a safety net, right? And that's what we want to be for our organization and mm -hmm. being efficient, but having an impact on them. And you're fine kind of not being in the spotlight because you want this stuff to, to go well. So I think it's mm -hmm. cool, you know, this uh, maybe getting a little bit meta, but this thing kind of fractals through it of you, you treat your team with these principles that are the mm -hmm. way that you want your compliance organization to treat the whole organization. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So thanks so much for sharing that. I think um, it's just, uh, I, I think it speaks volumes to the way that you've uh, treated the people around you um, to build them up um, and ultimately, you know, like the way that we like to think about it here is that, you know, it, if you're advancing in an organization, if you're becoming more successful, you're not, you're not doing it by climbing over people and getting to the top. You're doing it by serving people well and empowering them to serve. And then we can all kind of move forward with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, um, you, you talked a little bit about how, as you came into this career and um, you know, kind of what compliance what compliance was like back then. Um, the you know this industry is changing a lot, and I think it's a really exciting and uh, dynamic time to be part of compliance because um, a lot of things are coming together from the abilities that compliance leaders have to execute the plays that we need, um, the ways that companies are looking to compliance and ethics experts to. Um, take care of these things, um, and also the broader society realizing that when these things go unchecked, um, it causes broader problems, and we can't just kind of wait for something mm -hmm. to go wrong. Um, right. So, uh, what are the most exciting or profound ways that you're excited about that compliance will be different five years from now than mm -hmm. uh, compared to you know what it was five years ago? Yeah, I think, you know, sort of the, those tenets that I mentioned from earlier, that one of the most exciting parts for me is that compliance is really ever evolving. Um, so if we think about using modern slavery, for an example, a lot of companies have now brought that uh, topic into their compliance programs. And then um, there are other areas in which the compliance program drops subject matters as well. So for some companies, maybe data privacy and security now falls to another function rather than compliance. Perhaps it's in information security. 
Um, and then, interestingly, there are other areas that we thought at the time may have been the next big thing in compliance, and then they sort of passed us by um, without, you know, a, a, a big, um, uh, you know, a, a great deal of noise being made about them. And conflict sure. minerals is, is a, a topic that I'm, I'm thinking of in that respect. And I'm not saying, um, it, you know, deal in, in uh, conflict materials, but um, what I'm saying is that it didn't, in my mind, become a fundamental uh, part of compliance programs that changed them in terms of how people structured and operated their compliance departments. Yeah, it's still relevant, but it didn't kind of turn mm -hmm. everything on its side. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not it, it, it's not what, what we saw with GDPR, for example, yeah. where people scrabbled and we're still trying to figure out how to best address it um, further down the track. So I love that aspect. I love that it keeps you on your toes and it's challenging in that respect. You're dealing with new things. And one of the benefits of dealing with new things is that there's a lot of scope for innovating, for treading a new path, um, perhaps even showing someone else the way. So that's the exciting part about compliance for me is that it's a relatively new discipline and therefore it's just completely filled with opportunities to do something that no one's ever done before, to approach something in a new way because it's not so old that all of the approaches have already been tried and you yeah. get to be constantly challenged, constantly doing something new. That's awesome. Um, and I think that, you know, to answer the the the, the second part of, of your question there about what we can expect to see in the future. Um, I think that uh, behavioral economics, which I know that you and I have, have got a, a joint interest in um, yeah. and <laughs> predictive analytics is going to play a big part in what we're going to see in the next five years. And, you know, behavioral science is not a new subject matter as such, like those other areas that we talked about before, yeah. but it does help us to evaluate our compliance programs in a way that anecdotal evidence simply can't. Um, because we're such a new, new discipline as we've touched on, we tend to rely on anecdotal evidence or benchmarking reports to help us inform what we're doing in the compliance function. And as much as I lap up benchmarking reports when they're released, I do think that they have a limitation in that just because everyone else is doing something, it doesn't mean that it's actually effective. Sometimes the majority just means that all fools are on the same side. And mm. what I love about behavioral economics is that it confirms your hypothesis or it disproves it so that you can stop doing what's not working. And, um, you know, I, I see a lot in compliance that um, sometimes a thought leader will share something with, that they've done in their own company and we think, damn, that sounds good. But the reality is, is that human nature is a much more complex and often it's counterintuitive. And so we can use the brain science to help us figure out what's actually working and what's sunk costs. So I think that plus predictive analytics will continue to be exciting for us as time goes on. A world where having data sets that can indicate who might be about to commit a large fraud in the company, that that's the norm and compliance initiatives that are implemented because they're proven effective thanks to the empirical evidence garnered from psychology-based research. Yeah, that's a huge point. And I love that, you know, obviously you're, you, you care about it, you see the trend, um, and you already have your eyes on it. But I think it's really cool. Um, and, you know, something that I think people outside of the industry don't get, but um, maybe 20 years ago, compliance and some of the things that that we try to do today, were very just kind of do the way do it the way that it's been done, make sure you check this box, this, you know, this regulation hasn't changed. So here's how you stay away from it but it's really a very dynamic industry and it takes smart, mm -hmm. caring people like you 
to oh, you know so see kind. that and to to get through it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did like how you worked in a little bit of your dream of being a scientist in there about pr uh, confirming or disproving your hypothesis. It's still <laughs> back in there somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great point about how, you know, if this is what everyone's doing, it may be, you know, if you're way, quote unquote, behind it, then that may be kind of where you can get to and you say, oh, you know, uh, everyone else is getting, you know, this reporting rate or substantiating this many, this many of their issues, right. some indication, but as I you agree. know, given the complexity of, you know, people, their minds in an organization, that can indicate a few different things. And those mm -hmm. predictive analytics and the way that we're going to be able to both kind of track and monitor behavior and also kind of predict reactions and, um, you know, kind of follow on from that. I, I think it's going to be a really exciting way for ethics experts to kind of take hold of these new technologies mm -hmm. and to do things that we, you know, couldn't have hoped to do 10 years ago and make them part of the normal course of the job. That's going to be pretty cool. Absolutely. And, you know, the, um, what you mentioned about the benchmarking reports is I think they go hand in hand, right? Like, let's say you get a surprising um, result from the, the benchmarking reports and you're like, oh, that's, that's an interesting trend that other companies are experiencing, but we're not. And then you, you apply the behavioral economics and you can understand, okay, why is it that we might be getting that result? Is there a reason why we're the minority in terms of, of getting it? Or is it in fact that the majority um, are less advanced than my company? And so perhaps we're getting it right right now, but we're simply using the data to tell us why. Yeah. Um, and, and I think at times it can be hard without the data to just anecdotally know what side of it you're on. And I like mm -hmm. that, you know, within the compliance profession, I've seen ethics experts be very collaborative and, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're all kind of fighting the same battle, even if you're talking to a compliance officer at, you know, the quote unquote competitor to your company, you're both trying to take care of people and make sure you don't get in trouble. And, you know, people are open to talk about that stuff, but uh, until you have the data, it's just kind of another anecdote to compare to a benchmark to see if you should move in one direction or another. And I think it'll be exciting yeah. to see our leaders be really empowered by those data and to be able to anticipate things um, and get ahead of it instead of being reactive. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, on your point about the collaboration and compliance, I always think one of the cruelest things um, for being outside of compliance is that we in compliance always tell people, don't talk to your competitors, you know, don't share um, the information of what you're doing with them. And in compliance, we're one of the few areas where it's not anti-competitive to share what we're doing in our compliance programs. And so we have this great ability as compliance professionals to leverage off each other's knowledge. Yeah. But at the same time, we're kind of telling our colleagues, don't do that. <laughs> Because it's like, <laughs> it creates risk for the company in, in terms of the work that the business development folk do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty funny and interesting dynamic. Um, and I think it speaks to kind of the core of what we're trying to accomplish and why it's not, in, not uh, kind of anti-competitive to do that in that, you know, um, we're trying to, in a lot of ways, push a stronger culture and keep bad things from happening. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not really a trade secret to say, hey, uh, you should not retaliate against people who report something. <laughs> right. uh, it's like, if you can yeah. spread that and some more people are better, then let's compete on our products or our service or something like that, mm -hmm. not compete on who can be less bad to their people, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, so 
at, you know, we, we, we just talked some about kind of some broad industry changes and this move toward more technology. And I think that that behavioral economics and understanding that people don't always kind of behave in rational ways, uh, but they, they might behave in predictable ways um, is an important thing for us to um, mm -hmm. re really kind of keep our eye on. But, sure. you know, um, I'd, I'd love to talk maybe a little bit closer around like what changes do you see afoot kind of right now that you see are happening at the people who are pushing compliance forward? And, you know, maybe like, what do you think that we as ethics experts need to fight against that might keep the advancement from happening of, you know, we've talked about this concept of moving from compliance 1.0 to 2.0 mm -hmm. and beyond, um, you know, what, like, what, what are the changes that are kind of helping people take that next step? And what is the, you know, inertia or resistance that you think uh, is going to make it hard for some, some organizations or our profession as a whole to make that jump? Mm -hmm. I think part of it is the the assumption that meeting compliance 2.0 is the end of everything, but that's your end goal. Mm. The reality is we're going to start seeing compliance 3.0, and as time goes on, those numbers are going to only keep ticking up. Yeah. And as an example of that, what I would say is, is I'll just use my own company as an example. So um, Fresenius entered into a corporate integrity agreement in the United States um, back in the relatively early 2000s. And at that time, um, uh, you know, coming out of that process, it probably would have been fair for colleagues to feel very confident and happy with the compliance program that they'd worked on, feeling it was cutting edge, advanced, best in class kind of thing. Now, the problem is if we remain complacent and we still do the same things that we were doing back in 2006, and we're doing those now and haven't done anything to advance or improve and strive towards compliance 2.0, what compliance 2.0 looks like with inflation now in 2020, yeah. um, then we're never really gonna, gonna progress because as we were talking about before, compliance is an ever evolving concept, right? So if you're not adjusting your compliance program, if you're not constantly striving to keep it going, to keep it best in class, um, to, to keep it cutting edge, then of course it's not going to be. It's gonna be a program that may have looked good in that snapshot in the early 2000s, but hasn't kept up to date with the realities of, of the ever-changing world that we live in. Yeah, I think, I, I just, I, I think that's a great point that that threat of complacency can come from a lot of angles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the other aspect of compliance 2.0 and eventually 3.0 is the acknowledgement that it's actually really hard for any one company to be compliance 2.0 in every respect, right? So we can't beat ourselves up about not, not doing what Google might be doing with their compliance program in one area, especially, you know, tech type stuff that they would naturally have an advantage at compared with, you know, a healthcare company or, or a company in another industry. And so part of this is accepting as well that uh, you might have a compliance 2.0 program in terms of your third party management, but maybe um, your compliance action line provider is, is not servicing your needs adequately for you to have a really good speak up culture. Yeah. And it's not to say that that's okay, but it's about acknowledging that um, this is a kind of a perennial growth and advancement um, phase that we need to go through. We're not going to be perfect in any any um, 
any and all areas at once. We're probably going to be strong at a few and developing others and maybe lagging behind a bit, unfortunately, in some of our weakest areas of the program. So understanding that that is the case and then saying, okay, well, what is it that we can do? What is the best that we can do with the resources that we have? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. I love that you brought up this concept of kind of uh, inflation in compliance. And um, I think that some people maybe outside of the industry, maybe um, some allies and other uh, business units around the exec team may, may not realize that that's happening, but you know, that same thing is happening in other divisions, right? Sales teams mm -hmm. are not selling like they did 15 years ago. Right. Operations has a different standard for quality. You know, technology mm -hmm. is changing. And as those things change, compliance uh, needs to change to meet those challenges. And also mm -hmm. there, there, there are other ways um, that just kind of the available uh, solutions and technology and approaches and best practices require us to kind of keep climbing that hill. Um, and mm -hmm. even, you know, I, I love what you said that even if, you know, five or 10 years ago, you were at a quote unquote 2.0, um, you need to keep, you, you know, you need to keep swimming um, mm -hmm. up, up that river because if you stay still, you're going to fall behind. Totally. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's a great encouragement, Mary, for you to note that, you know, you're not going to be great in all these areas, right? And it's, you know, I, a lot of times I, I consider ethics experts as responsible for caring for the whole health of the organization, the people, it's, you know, kind of component parts, and kind of the whole operation in a lot of ways. And, you know, as people, we might not be getting enough sleep at some time, but we're good on our cardio fitness or something like that. Or mm -hmm. we're doing well, but, you know, we're too stressed out at work. And that's just kind of the flow of an yep. organism like a person. And it's the flow of an mm -hmm. organization as it changes and grows. Um, and, you know, I think as much as we as ethics leaders want to be, you know, excellent and we want to drive mm -hmm. uh, forward, uh, you know, we, we have to recognize that there's going to be kind of that give and take. Um, and not kind of get too down about it, but also realize that, okay, if this is falling too far behind, we got to, we, we got to let, look into this and kind of, uh, you know, move it forward a little bit more. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'd, I'd like to switch gears a little bit if you'll let me mm -hmm. marry, um, and talk a little bit about the international aspects of running a global compliance program. Um, uh, you know, I think I, I read in Compliance Week that uh, you've run compliance programs on four continents. So uh, we'll mm. see, see when you can add to that list. But how, um, <laughs> as, uh, as, a, a, as you've run that in different places and realize what it's like yourself to exist in different cultures and to acclimate, what do you find most impactful to localize your compliance initiatives across so many different cultures and locations? Yeah, so you're right. I have... Um lived on four continents. I consider them like Pokemon now, got to catch them all. So just uh, two left, not counting Antarctica. Um, we'll leave that one for so last, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the things I have to say, I always saw the value in culture of integrity surveys. I thought they were a great idea when they became popular, but I have to say, I have to admit, I really underestimated the value of them in terms of, of what you can do with them. Um, and so I have to say, I find them so useful. The approach that I take now is to think about the most basic pieces of information that I would expect the business to know and ask them about those because uh, 10 to one, you're going to be disappointed. Um, what you think people have a baseline knowledge of, unfortunately they don't. Uh, but the good news is you can find out what that is simply by asking and then remediate it. So for example, I asked them if they know the name of the compliance officer, 
where the compliance policies are stored, what the principle of non-retaliation for speaking up means, and so on, if they know that. Um, and I think many people, myself included, um, were typically quick to assume that if you've done a widespread communication campaign or the chief compliance officer works in the same building as certain staff, that they know about the topic of the campaign and who the chief compliance officer is. Um, but the surveys have indicated, as I, I mentioned before, that that's not the case. Um, so what this allows you to do once you have those answers is tailor your remediation, your education and training to suit that audience. So when you're asking the questions, I recommend don't doing, do a culture of integrity survey out to um, across the whole globe or necessarily say every single business unit in a certain country. You might like to divide it up. So for example, for us, we have some, some major limbs, um, manufacturing arm products um, and the services arm. So that's the delivery of the dialysis treatments in clinics and hospitals. So maybe you decide, okay, I won't do um, all of the Philippines. I'll do um, the uh, clinics as one survey audience, and then I'll do the corporate um, and or product staff as another limb. Okay. So then you can make sure that people who are already clear on certain subjects aren't being bored by compliance. You're making it proportionate. You're making it customized to the need. Um, but also ensuring that you don't do it so small uh, and customized that it becomes very obvious who's giving you what feedback and so wow. that you're, you know, identifying people in a negative way. Um, and so... That is, is one, one tool that I've really relied on and the way in which I've um, gotten real value from it, as I indicated, was taking the absolute um, most basic information that you would already expect people to know, especially if you have a really mature compliance program, you're going to be even more uh, confident uh, in your own thoughts that people have knowledge about certain areas, but if you've not checked on that to see if you're correct, you'll never know. So um, there's that aspect. And then I'm also a big fan of using Compliance Week, not just as an avenue for compliance to share information, but to use it as a two-way feedback mechanism. That is allowing the business a dedicated opportunity to tell us how we can improve the program. So for example, what you might do is have a whiteboard up or a word cloud tool running, and you ask them a question like, what is the first word you think of when um, you hear compliance? And many companies, I think, are very comfortable nowadays to say, we are absolutely not the policemen. We're not the people that always say no. We're a genuine business partner and business enabler. Yeah. But if you do that exercise, and all you need is really one person to put up the word no, that's a pretty good indicator that you're not quite where you want to be in terms of having that good reputation as being an advocate for um, the, the business and, and, and the interests of your colleagues. And you may need to, to temper your approach accordingly to work out wh where you might have a gap in terms of establishing the, the reputation and the perception that you're hoping for. And then it also allows you an ability to ask really basic questions like, um, what kind of areas of compliance do you still find fuzzy and you could do with more training on? You're, you're basically using an opportunity to get key stakeholder feedback. What I think we tend to do too much is go, oh, I think that we should do a training on X, Y, Z. Why? Because I saw lots of people talking about it at this conference or um, because I think that the policy is not written so clearly. The problem with that is that I'm not representative of my audience. So when you use your compliance week and your culture of integrity surveys as 
a way to get direct feedback, exactly like what we were talking about behavioral science. It's not you pushing out to the business what you think they need from an ethics perspective. It's getting um, really concrete answers as to what people need and what they want. I love that, Mary. I mean, that the things you're talking about are really kind of, you know, you're kind of going through your own 2.0, 3.0 process of, okay, we're not just saying no, we're an advocate and we're a business partner. And then more than just trying to be it, I'm going to find out ways that I'm not, and I'm going to dig mm-hmm. into it. And I'm going to, you know, like you said, we as our ethics experts, we're not necessarily the audience, right? There, there are mm-hmm. a bunch of people who don't ha- don't do the CEUs all the time and don't think about training all the time. And you're really kind of being that partner and that advocate by understanding them. Um, and mm-hmm. just, you know, I, I just love some of those tips in there because they're like simple to the point of being profound of just, just ask them, just ask about these simple things and it's going to indicate these bigger things. Um, uh, the, the, that's great. I, I, I love that uh, you shared that with us. Thanks, Mary. It's a pleasure. And, you know, I think this ties back to your earlier question about what some of the bigger challenges are gonna to be to getting to compliance 2.0. I think it's gonna be a compliance officer's own arrogance that they've done such a fantastic job that they fail to go back and cover up some of the gaps that may be left behind. The reality is, no matter how much of an ethics expert you are, no matter how compelling you are at delivering education, there are going to be gaps. Uh, the best of the best will have gaps. Um, but if you're not, seeking out ways in which to address them and not even cognizant of what some of those really obvious ones are or the ones that, sorry, aren't obvious to you, but are so glaringly obvious once you've gone to some effort to find out and just ask the simple question. Um, Yeah, I think that's going to be a means to really helping us progress if we're not overly confident in the work and our performance that we've done so far, that'll allow us to be better at our jobs going forward. That's great, Mary. Spoken like a true humble leader. There's that, you know, I think, uh, (laughs) no, I mean, it's great. Uh, Not just buttering you up. I just think that just people hearing that concept of, you know, I I think it needs to be balanced where, uh, you know, compliance leaders, by and large, you know, all the ones that I I meet and we work with, they, they have a heart to do this right. And they put their heart into their job and they care about doing it right. And sometimes, you know, working so hard in that direction can give you a bit of a blind spot of realizing like, okay, mm-hmm. well, you know, I know it really well and I'm confident mm-hmm. that I've implemented a best practice. And I think that I'm doing, you know, kind of, I'm beating the benchmarks and things like that. But realizing that, you know, like, like you were talking about the survey, there might be a localized division in one country or something like that, that doesn't have it. And we can always have that continuous improvement approach. Mm-hmm. That's right. So um, as we wrap up here in a couple minutes, Mary, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about our shared passion for behavioral economics, about how mm-hmm. um, people, uh, you know, we as leaders need to consider that people don't always kind of do what we want them to do. And often, you know, I don't even do what I want me to do, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, a big part of that, um, I think, is habits. And, you know, I think that uh, people who become successful and people who build a life that can really serve and make other people people's lives better usually have some habits that they've picked up from someone else that they've implemented in their life. And, and I'd love to see if you can share with me, because I'm interested, and also our listeners, um, is there a personal habit that either you have or aspire to that you'd recommend that people adopt to become a better ethics expert or that is just, uh, is just close to your heart? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the, the, the habit that I do the most or, or have the most is 
um, ensuring that I'm accessing uh, information about compliance developments and programs, hearing other people's thought leadership, hearing views that are contrasting to my own. So it's two-pronged. First part is really super simple. Um, I spend a lot of time, if I'm in between uh, doing things, you know, waiting for the train, sitting on the train, um, you know, waiting for a friend to um, come to restaurants to meet me when, of course, we're all allowed out, um, is using that time to just browse a couple of articles um, and to, to see some thought leadership and compliance. Uh, just because the company doesn't have budget to send you to a conference, it doesn't mean that you can't be continuously improving upon your knowledge. In fact, um, I learned the compliance fundamentals from a capable colleague, Iris Sung, who's now the Chief Compliance Officer of Intel. And after Iris left for Intel, I supplemented that knowledge by voraciously reading Tom Fox posts. Um, he was you know, really uh, doing a lot of blog posts at that time, and that's how I learned. Um, what I find when I ask people if they've read, you know, about certain topics is that they say, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. Um, and so I think the belief that you're too busy with so-called actual work to read compliance blogs and listen to podcasts is, in my mind, a false economy. And if you don't believe your own development isn't important enough to work on during the off hours, I think you're doing yourself a huge disservice. It's called professional development, but you personally take away all of that juicy knowledge with you everywhere you go to the next company, the next big opportunity that comes along, which is going to have a big impact on your life. You know, basic stuff, if you're earning more money in your next role, because you're a, a subject matter now compared with the last one that you jumped from. Um, if you're able to move to a job, which allows you um, better flexibility and work from home opportunities to spend time with your children, that's your personal life. Um, yeah. So the excuse in my mind that you don't have time um, to, to better yourself and to learn and develop, um, I think that's, that's punishing yourself. Um, and then the, the, in addition to the, the first prong, the second is expanding on your views and your world further um, by continuing that conversation that, that you're getting from those readings and those podcasts. So what does that look like? Um, I do a few key things, but I'm sure your savvy listeners will have more to add to this list. So once you read something awesome, sharing that article um, and uh, doing it on LinkedIn to open up a wider group discussion and get a real richness and diversity of the views of the network around you, but then also thinking about people who have certain interest areas in the, the topics that you've read about. So um, for example, I just read one about um, the, the behavioral economics um, of using inclusive language in um, compliance policies and how that can actually have detrimental effects when previously it was considered to be best practice. And I sent that to an old colleague who, um, who drafts, I think he's probably done thousands by now um, of, of, of policies and shared this with him. And he commented back and, and shared some views that I hadn't considered um, that really changed how I viewed the article. So um, Ensuring that you're sharing with your wide network, but also going to people who have certain subject matter areas of interest, because they'll likely have really interesting things to say about the topic as uh, an expert in that area. But it also helps you maintain your network, right? Like, um, you can't always be just chatting about mundane stuff with people to genuinely build a relationship. Um, Salespeople can't always be saying, hey, look at my demo as their way to, to maintain relationships, try giving something back. So maybe you're sharing an article that had great observations with someone. And then um, the other thing to do is to reach out to um, the authors of the articles and um, to the, the podcast guests. Um, if they've spoken on something that you're really interested in and want to know more about, 
they're very likely to point you in the direction of additional resources. Um, Hui Chen, for example, um, when she writes a new training article, she knows that that's something that I'm really interested in. So she emailed me her last article and said, I know that this is a special area of interest for you. Thought you might like to, to see some of my, my latest views on this. And so what you're doing is you're not just getting that one-sided approach of analyzing and interpreting and coming to your own conclusions, but you're using um, this learning opportunity as a way to connect with your um, your wider network uh, and also build upon your own, let's face it, limited views, right? Because multiple minds are better than one. Um, and so that's the habit that I try to get into. Um, voraciously reading and absorbing and listening to um, people who are smarter than me and then having a discussion with that about that content with other people who are smarter than me. Um, how else can I, I better learn and, um, and challenge my worldview? That's awesome, Mary. Um, I, I, I think there's so much good stuff in there. It's almost like the things that you're talking about, uh, like you can't afford not to do them, to say that mm -hmm. you're too busy to do it. No, like your job is too busy not to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just, I appreciate you sharing. There, there's so much richness in all that that you just went over. Um, you know, even the article that you brought up, I think I saw it and I wouldn't be surprised if I saw it because you shared it on LinkedIn. Um, and you've already I think you did um, come in. helped me in that way. And uh, I'll just say that I really enjoyed having a conversation with someone who's smarter than me. And Stop uh, it. from you, Mary, no, really, this is, uh, there's so much stuff that uh, you've said that, you know, I just really want to hold on to and think about. And I just um, would encourage our listeners to, uh, you know, find something from what we've talked about today that can make them a better ethics expert. Um, uh, I want to congratulate you, Mary, on being recognized as a compliance innovator, um, but Thank also you. want to give you a chance in case um, you want to uh, talk about anything else that, that you're working on. So I think you've um, asked some really great questions in, in terms of, of opening a, a dialogue on some of the, the key topics of interest to us, which I, I hope will be of interest to your listeners, but of course we'll never know unless you tell us directly. Um, so thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really big fan of, of you and your brother. I think you're doing really great things in the compliance space um, and your interaction is super fresh. You know, there's a new generation of, of compliance professionals around and um, it's very fun, um, very inclusive and collaborative, and uh, you're a big piece of that. So thank you for your contributions, and again, for having me a guest on your show. Thank you so much. It's been a sincere pleasure. I'm so glad that uh, you shared some of your day with us, um, and uh, it's really been great. I uh, look forward to continuing to hear you and you, uh, your guests on the Great Women in Compliance podcast. And um, I will keep taking your advice to voraciously read and share and engage people in conversations. Thank you so much, Mary. All right, back at you. Thank you. So uh, yeah, let's, uh, that's it. That's all we got. Um, what's what's on deck for today? How how is uh, how is work for you right now? Is it pretty kind of frenetic or what? Yeah, we've been crazy. So we're under an FCPA monitorship. Um, so yeah. even pandemic aside, we have quite um, aggressive deadlines for being able to satisfy 
the Department of Justice and the Monitor that we've taken our FCPA uh, lessons seriously. So um, the monitorship was supposed to be two years, um, and which means that she does a round of, say, site visits to certain countries and provides us with recommendations, and we need to quickly address that and remediate those issues. And then she's testing us as to whether we've, you know, fixed the problems. And, and so we're constantly, and this is on top of our normal obviously running a compliance program work. So even beyond the crisis, and then of course being a healthcare company, there are a lot of different considerations for us, um, which means that colleagues are coming with um, more questions for advisory, because we may need to do things differently in this current environment. And of course, compliance is always consulted. So um, it's super busy times, but um, because I'm speaking to you from the future, it's Friday today, so I have that. Um, yeah, and um, I'm not sure if you're aware, I think, you, yeah, you are, that I'm sort of stranded in New Zealand, but yeah. um, every day my mum and I make brunch and um, have some time, so I sort of do the split shift, I get up before her and do some of my work, take a break and, you know, um, catch up, and then I go back to my second shift, and unfortunately sometimes I'm working around the clock because of um, the time difference here is is terrible, but there are a lot of um, a lot of benefits to the situation. I just really hope that I'm going to be able to get back to the U.S. before my visa um, properly expires because oh. that will be difficult otherwise. So yeah, it's hard to reinitiate that, huh? Well, I'm glad yeah, you're finding some so silver lining. Is your is your mom doing okay yeah. with the quarantine and everything? Yeah. Yeah, she is. Thanks. So um, we've 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 had a pretty good experience and have a nice little um, routine going. You know, movies in the evening. And I mean, last night I did um, sort of a seven p.m. call, a nine p.m. call, and an eleven p.m. call, and we just watched movies like in between. Like I jumped off and then watched another, and then ran back to do it. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's pretty good. I'm I'm exhausted, but still functioning. So very good. And, and how about yourself? Uh, yeah, I think for, for us, it seems like it's normalized a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that three and four weeks ago, uh, things were changing quickly and, um, you know, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, um, kind of handling employee concerns and making sure that we had enough to keep our people safe and keep them here. Um, and then, you know, kind of figuring out how to manage a new remote team was a lot. Um, but you know, it's, it seems like we've kind of gotten used to it. Um, uh, at home, I, I have two young kids at home, so mm. they're like a little bit stir crazy, and they're used to oh, kind of going on play dates with their friends and things like that. Mm -hmm. But even that, we've uh, you know bought a bunch of sidewalk chalk and tried to figure out how awesome. to how to keep them uh, entertained. So um, yeah, yeah there, there's something about what's going on that yeah I I I think makes a lot of us just kind of reflect on kind of uh, appreciating what we have. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, it's definitely a lot of things going on that I wasn't expecting to be challenged with right now. Um, mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of things that, uh, that are important to me that I have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope that your, um, your family um, stay safe and, and enjoys themselves during this period of uh, sort of enforced family time. <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah. We're learning to yeah. get along. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Um, it's thank not you. lost on me how, uh, how busy you are and what a uh, big job that you have to do. Um, I'm really honored and appreciative that you shared some of your day with me. Well, equally for me, um, you know, obviously being on the other side as well, there are a, a great many people that you could be speaking to. And I'm really honored that um, you made space in the agenda for, for me and, and considered my views worthwhile to, to put on a show. So thank you so much.